This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. On the 18th of May 2016, Caldor Centre Research Associate Madeline Gleeson presented her new book titled Offshore, Behind the Wire on Manus and Nauru. UNSW Vice-Chancellor Professor Ian Jacobs and Law Faculty Dean Professor David Dixon opened the event. Everybody and uh, welcome. Thank you for coming to this uh, very, very special event. Let me begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of this Aboriginal land, the Bidjigal people. Pay my respects to their elders, past and present, and to all our Aboriginal colleagues and students and friends who are here this evening. Um, my my role is, is simply to introduce. The, uh, my boss, the Vice-Chancellor, but I can't do so before first just making a couple of comments about the book which is, which is the subject of tonight's event. Firstly, by acknowledging Renata and Andrew Caldor, the sponsors of the, the centre in which Madeleine Gleeson works, it's, it's only with their help that this book has happened, and it's, it's a shame that they're not here tonight, but I do want to acknowledge everything that they've done for us. Madeline's book is exactly what Renata and Andrew set that centre up to do, which is to make interventions into the debate, such as it is, around our responsibilities to people who are lost in the world because of the, the, the upheavals in the countries in which they, they live. And it's, a, a, I think, a, a really wonderful piece of, piece of work. Of the first hundred pages I've managed to read so far. Uh, now, let me introduce our President and Vice Chancellor, Professor Ian Jacobs, to introduce Madeleine properly. Ian. Thanks, David. Um, it's a great pleasure to be here this evening. You're, you're all, those of you who are visiting, are very welcome to UNSW. Um, it's a pleasure to be here because this is an extraordinary book. It's also an incredibly important book, and I'm delighted to have the opportunity to introduce to you the author, Madeleine Gleeson. Um, the book, of course, is Offshore Behind the Wire on Manus and Nauru. It's also a pleasure because the book is published by New South Press, and um, Cathy, our, the, the head of New South Press, is here. Madeline is a lawyer and research associate at the Andrew and Renato Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. And as David said, um, Madeline's post and this book would not be possible without the centre, which is so wonderfully directed by Jay McAdam, who's here this evening. Um, I think that if, if the, the centre has achieved all sorts of amazing things, if it had just achieved giving Madeline the opportunity to produce this book, that in itself would be a great achievement. Of course, the Centre has done a lot more than that. It's the first research centre dedicated to the study of international refugee law. It was established quite recently in 2013 through the generosity of Andrew and Renata Keldor. And I had the privilege of meeting with them recently and discussing what motivated them to do it, and there is absolutely no doubt it was motivated by their personal deep concern 
about Australia's treatment of refugees and asylum seekers having their own families experienced the stresses and strains of being refugees themselves. I am delighted and honoured to note that Madeline is a UNSW alumnus. She completed the degrees of Bachelor in International Studies and Bachelor of Laws at UNSW. She got a first class honours in the last of those, I believe. Madeline also holds a Master in International Law from the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies in Geneva. She completed that after being awarded the, what are very, now very prestigious John Monash scholarships, hers was in 2012, and she has a diploma in political studies from Aix-en-Provence in France. Madeleine has experience in the refugee environment. She's worked with UNHCR and the International Catholic Migration Commission in Geneva, with the Jesuit Refugee Service in Cambodia, and as a solicitor in Australia. She also has human rights and refugee experience in South Africa and Indonesia. Quite a CV. Madeline's research areas include the law of state responsibility, extraterritorial human rights obligations, offshore processing, and the protection of children. This book, as you all know, comes at an extraordinarily challenging and important time. The world now faces the largest number of displaced people since the Second World War. And I'm sure we'd all agree that countries must come together to find better solutions to the challenge of forced migration. We need to understand what policies work and what policies don't work. And that requires us to look at the evidence of their effects. And that's precisely what this book does through its rigorous research. The book provides a comprehensive overview of the first three years of Australia's policy of offshore processing for asylum seekers and refugees since it was introduced in 2012. It explains why offshore processing was re-established, what life is like for asylum refugees and seekers on Nauru and Manus, what asylum seekers, refugees and staff in the offshore detention centres say about what goes on there and why the truth about what is happening under this policy has been so hard to find. It's truly astonishing. In doing so, it goes behind the rumours and allegations that very often surround this topic to reveal what is known and what is still not known about Australia's offshore detention centres. In writing the book, Madeline systematically <coughs> went through publicly available sources, including government and Department of Immigration interviews, and media releases, media reports, submissions to inquiries, and responses to those submissions, as well as accessing sources on Manus and Nauru. The book serves to demonstrate the vital contribution which is to be made by academics to the migration debate, not only domestically but internationally. Much of the justification in the Australian context has been fighting people smuggling, protecting the safety of life at sea and seeking to discourage asylum seekers from embarking upon risky sea voyages. It should be noted, however, that the issue of migrants and asylum seekers being prepared to risk dangerous sea crossings in search of refuge is not, of course, isolated to the Australian context. 
In the course of the 2015-16 European migrant crisis, over one million people have set out to cross the Mediterranean from North Africa or the Aegean from Turkey, with the aim of landing in Italy or Greece to claim asylum within the European Union. In the course of the crisis, over 13,000 asylum seekers have been rescued by naval units, but sadly, more than, more than an estimated 5,000 asylum seekers have lost their lives. At UNSW, we are determined to do what we can to contribute to rising to this challenge. And in that context, I, I couldn't speak tonight without noting that our second grand challenge, the first, which is ongoing, is climate change. Our second grand challenge to focus our public engagement will be refugees and migration. In a moment, I'm going to welcome Madeline, our staff member, proud to say, and the author of this really important book to take the stage and talk about her work. And then we will have 20 minutes for questions and discussion. But before doing that, I just wanted to finish off by... And, and David, I've read about 100 pages, but I've read selected pages through the book rather than the first 100. And I... I, I um, <coughs> I, I got to the end, and I, I thought this was um, really important last paragraph to the book on page 414. So I'd just like to read this out to you very briefly. And so everything comes down to the Australian public. The information is now on the record for all to know. In early 2016, under the new government of Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, and with an election looming, ignorance is no longer an excuse. Pressure is mounting for the Australian Government to accept responsibility for its offshore immigration policies, decide on a clear path for the future, and to immediately begin repairing the harm done to asylum seekers and refugees on Australia's watch. A problem shifted is not a problem solved, and the country as a whole faces a critical choice. Allow abuse to continue in its name, with full knowledge of what is going on, or recognise that it is time for a new approach to the challenges of displace, displacement, one that is effective, fair and humane. Madeline, congratulations on the book. The floor is yours. Thank you very much, Professors. Jacobs and Dixon, and to everyone here tonight for coming along. I'd like to echo the acknowledgement of country and the Bedigal people, the traditional custodians of this land. And I'd also like to acknowledge another group uh, who may be in this room tonight, which is anyone who has spent time in one of the offshore detention centres, or who has friends or family who have spent time there. Because I might be the one on stage, but I am certainly not the only one that knows a little something about what's been going on there. Um, and a lot of people have done some very important work trying to work within whatever constraints they have to shed some light on what's happening there. So I'd, I'd like to acknowledge them as well before I start. So what's been happening behind the wire on Manus and Nauru? It's always hard to know where to start answering a question like that. What I try to do in Offshore is to provide a chronological narrative to set all the events and individual incidents and rumours and allegations within their context, stripped of the political spin, 
and acknowledging that there are often very substantial differences of opinions and different accounts of what has happened um, on, on just about every issue and that we can't resolve those differences with the current state of information that we've got. I, I encourage everyone to read the book and that's not just a matter of self-promotion. It's because the story put together like that is really the only way that we can properly understand what exactly is happening offshore. <coughs> The alternative is I could stand here and berate you for 20 minutes with really horrific graphic stories of abuse and cruelty. Um, and there is no end to the sickening stories that I could share, and I, I promise you that the reality really is as bad or much worse um, than most of us know. It really is very bad there. But ultimately, the real story of what's happening is impossible to comprehend when presented in this way. Life is not just a series of isolated experiences, it's the cumulative impact of everyday life. And the everyday life of people that we have sent to Nauru and Manus is so far removed from what most Australians can understand that a few graphic stories here and there can never really capture it. So instead of a barrage, a litany of horrors this evening, I'm going to try sharing a few general insights that I gathered from the process of researching and writing the book. Um, and to really put the focus on those instead. There are many different opinions about what Australian immigration policy should be, about how many refugees our country should accept in and the best way to do so. Uh, indeed, if anything, more debate on these questions is desperately what this country needs, more airing of the differences and more talking them through to their completion. But from an evidence-based perspective, there is really no room to argue that offshore processing has been an effective policy for addressing forced displacement in our region. It is a failure, and if we look back historically, it has been a failure from the outset in achieving this goal. Let me take us back for a moment to 2012, to August of 2012. The Gillard government was facing incredible pressure to come up with some sort of a solution to the increasing number of boats arriving in Australia. And so, as a stopgap, short-term, interim measure, the Gillard government reintroduced offshore processing. And the point of this policy was to be a place filler until a regional cooperation framework could be developed. Even at that time, the government never intended that offshore processing would become the central pillar of Australian immigration policy. Looking back on that time later, uh, Dr. Kieran Kike, who was the Nauruan Foreign Minister, said, we had always had in our minds a three-month minimum period for re-establishing the facilities. These are the facilities on Nauru. Potentially longer, depending on what was being envisaged. Now, in reality, it was just two weeks difference between Nauru and Australia signing an agreement for the reinstation of offshore processing and the first plane load of 30 Sri Lankan men leaving Australia bound for Nauru. Two weeks. At that time, nothing was in place in Nauru. There were no facilities for people to be housed in. There were no systems for people to have their asylum claims processed. Over on Manus, the situation was arguably even worse. There were questions about whether the centre would even be able to open at all because of issues with local landowners and business owners. And the whole project was absolutely, completely up in the air. In the end, a special paramilitary squad had to be flown into Manus to settle the landowner disputes and allow that centre to open. 
again very quickly by November of 2012. So what we had at this point was something that was supposed to be short term, it was definitely rushed in its implementation. And if we fast forward to July of the following year, July 2013, by this point Kevin Rudd had been reinstated as the leader of the Labor Party and as the Prime Minister at that time. And this was almost at the end of the first year of offshore processing. It had almost 12 months since it had first been reinstated. And Prime Minister Rudd announced a new policy at that point. He said that everyone arriving on or after the 19th of July 2013 would still be subject to offshore processing, but now they would never have the option of resettling in Australia if they were ultimately found to be refugees. Everybody who had already been sent offshore in the first year was gradually brought back to Australia to be processed here, and it's worth noting that many of them are still waiting to be processed here. And that was to make room for this new cohort of arrivals post-July 2013. So in that first year, between August 2012 and July 2013, we saw numerous reported cases of abuse, self-harm and suicide attempts offshore, and the mental and physical health of the people there deteriorated very gravely, and that includes children as young as seven years old. But in this time, more boats arrived in Australia than at any other time in Australian history, and not a single person was processed. So I think it's pretty clear to say that in that first year, there was no effective outcome of offshore processing. It was not a success in achieving any goal. It was not a deterrent. No one was being processed, and it was incredibly harmful. And so commenced the second phase of offshore processing, that which is applied to everyone who has arrived on or since the 19th of July 2013. And this phase would prove as ineffective as the first. At some point towards the end of 2013, early 2014, the number of boats arriving did slow. The Labor Party would claim that that was a result of Kevin Rudd's announcement to take resettlement in Australia off the table. The coalition would argue that it was a result of Operation Sovereign Borders and the commencement of interdiction and turn back at sea, which started under the Abbott government when they came into power in September 2013. Whatever the cause, it's important to note that the boats have not stopped. Earlier this year, the government very proudly announced that it had intercepted and turned around almost 700 people since Operation Sovereign Borders began. So 700 people, at least, that we know of, was still coming by boat. And the most recent arrival was just over a week ago, when a boat believed to be carrying asylum seekers from Sri Lanka reached the Cocos Islands. We don't know who was there, and we don't know what happened to them. Cocos residents uh, believe there were maybe about 12 people. They believe there were women, children, possibly even an infant on board. Um, but those people were bundled straight back onto a plane to Colombo, and we have no information about what has happened to them since. So the boats have not stopped, despite offshore processing. And it's noteworthy that these people that reached Cocos last week were not taken to Nauru or Manus for offshore processing. They were put on a plane and sent straight home. And some people have taken actions such as this as evidence that offshore processing is not an effective deterrent and the Australian government knows it. Physically turning around a boat or forcing someone onto a plane back to their country of origin these may be ways to prevent a refugee from entering Australian territory, but offshore processing less so. Meanwhile, this policy has done nothing to address the backlog of displaced people in the region who are still in need of international protection and still looking for a solution. And they've done nothing to address the reasons why people are being forced to flee their homes in the first place. 
And until those two things are addressed, the backlog and the reason people are leaving in the first place, Australia cannot say that it has an effective policy in place for addressing irregular uh, migration in this region. These problems have not gone away, and they won't go away on their own, no matter how long the centres in Nauru and Manus stay open. So if we move away from the deterrent and the border security argument and look at other metrics by which to measure whether offshore processing has been effective, the human cost is devastating. And any page of my book will give you an evidence of that. I, I don't need to go into them all here. From the financial perspective, we're sinking billions of dollars every year into this policy. It's just about the most expensive way imaginable of keeping 2,000 vulnerable people out of the country. So it doesn't make sense from that perspective either. And from a diplomatic or political perspective, Australia has lost credibility in the region, and indeed on the broader international scale, as a leader in upholding the rule of law and human rights. How can we possibly go now and ask our neighbours to do more to address forced displacement in the Asia-Pacific when we have shown so little willingness to do so ourselves? How can we urge our neighbours to uphold democratic ideals when our government has compromised so many in its desperate efforts to keep offshore processing on foot despite numerous legal challenges in Australia, in Nauru and in Papua New Guinea? And all this for a policy that has no discernible end game, that has never had an end game. <coughs> No person who arrives by vote seeking asylum will ever be resettled in Australia. We've heard this repeatedly over and over again. We continue to hear it in the lead up to the election. Nauru has said that refugees cannot stay there forever. There is a slim chance that some of the men in Papua New Guinea might be able to remain there and make a home, but recent developments have thrown the viability of that option into doubt for the vast majority of the men there. And indeed, what we've seen with the recent judgment in the PNG Supreme Court is that Australia has no plan B in the inevitable event that offshore processing falls apart. Cambodia was offered a $55 million deal to take refugees from Nauru, but only five people ever chose to take up that offer, and three of them subsequently left. Others have found the devastating conditions offshore too overwhelming and have elected to go home despite the risks, including people who have gone back to Syria, to areas at the very heart of the conflict zone, because that was preferable to remaining in an Australian detention centre. In fact, the only success story, really, that we've had in almost four years of offshore processing is a man and his teenage son who were resettled in Canada. And the only reason that was possible was because the mother had gone there separately and applied for asylum there, been granted it, and then had family reunification rights. And in the lead-up to the election, neither party has an answer to where the refugees offshore are expected to go if they are to win and become government. So beyond being inhumane and grossly expensive, offshore processing is ineffective and ultimately unsustainable. We need a new policy. This one is not going to be the answer. In the few minutes I have left before we do a, a quick Q&A, I thought I'd just remark on a few other insights that I gathered. The first is that the level of secrecy governing everything that is offshore is extraordinary. This has been commented on before, high level of secrecy, high level of secrecy, but it really is beyond what is normal in any other context. Beyond setting up these centres in remote locations and keeping them as closed rather than open centres, denying all media access and public access, which is worth noting is not what would happen in an onshore Australian detention centre there is significantly more access that you would get to a detention centre in Australian soil than offshore. 
There is no understandable reason why the refugees and asylum seekers there should be forbidden from having mobile phones or should have their internet and phone use monitored. They have not committed any crime. There is no reason why they should not be able to freely engage in communication with their loved ones back home or any advocates that they wish to reach out to. Staff offshore have to sign confidentiality agreements. And some people I spoke to would even refuse to sign the disclosure agreement because they were that concerned about there being any paper trail that they'd ever spoken to me. And that's before even we had the Australian Border Force Act come in and threaten jail sentences for people who speak out about what they know. In Manus Island, the few who have tried to get out to the centre have been chased away by a paramilitary squad. So it certainly raises the question of what exactly is being hidden out there. If everything is fine, and if every allegation of mistreatment is trumped up, then why is there such a thick veil of secrecy over everything that's happening offshore? The second uh, insight I wanted to make a comment on here is the repeated note that everyone I spoke to said who had been offshore, which is that it is a parallel universe. It is impossible for someone in Australia to fully understand the reality of what life is like in those centres. And that's staff that are saying that. Staff have come back and said, I can't explain why I thought this was normal there, or why I said this, or why I did this, and I, and I can't possibly explain it to you. And when I come back, I sort of just want to spend time with the people who I worked with over there because they're the only ones that would understand. Some people have come back and said, I feel like I've returned from a war zone. And I know that's ridiculous because I wasn't in a war zone, but that's sort of what it feels like. So it really is something very, very foreign. And while we can't fully understand it, we do all have an obligation to try and inform ourselves as much as possible uh, of the general facts of what's happening there. Finally, I wanted to remark on the extraordinary lengths that the Australian government has gone to to keep asylum seekers and refugees out of the Australian jurisdiction once they've been offshore. There's the case of a young boy who broke his arm and could comfortably have been put on a commercial flight back to Australia with his mother to receive surgery in an Australian hospital. But after about five weeks' worth of delay, in which doctors said he was entering a very dangerous risk of permanent disability, the ultimate solution was to fly a surgeon and the entire surgical team and all the equipment for a mobile surgical operating theatre to Nauru rather than just bringing him back on the next flight to Australia and have the surgery done there. There's also been a number of high-profile cases of women who have been raped and fallen pregnant on Nauru, including one who is currently being taken to PNG for an abortion, despite that procedure um, being unlawful there or her facing the possibility of criminal charges if she were to go through with it there. So it's incredible lengths to keep people out of the Australian jurisdiction. It does beg the question why. And it seems to a certain extent to be to try and, um, for fear that they'll be brought within the jurisdiction of the Australian courts and that the Australian courts might try to intervene. Which makes us wonder, if the government is doing something illegal, it's not only appropriate but necessary that the courts are given an opportunity to decide on that, and if so, for the government to be able to bring their policy back into line with what the courts rule to be lawful or not. And if the government is confident that what it's doing with regard to offshore processing is legal, then what's the problem? because surely a judgment to that effect would serve its purpose. So there's definitely a question mark that needs to be answered there. Perhaps the concern is that if you bring vulnerable people back to Australia, even for a short while, even just to wait out the result of a court case, the Australian public may realise something that it's easy to look while they're hidden away offshore. And that's that these are human beings with whom we can identify, who have common concerns with us, 
and who are deserving of our care. And if the Australian public fully realises that, then there might be a pressure there that is politically difficult to manage. So this evening, that's my main message uh, to everyone who's here. Whatever your views on immigration policy, may they at least recognise that what we're dealing he with here are real people who need and are deserving of our care. Thank you. Professor Ian Jacobs invited questions from the audience. The first question was, if offshore processing were to be dismantled, what would be the preferred solution? Handily, to solve the entire issue that we've been debating about, obviously there is no silver bullet answer. Um, at the general level, the common consensus is, if you want a solution, if you want to work out how to stop people coming by boat and secure the border and meet all of those objectives, there need to be safe and legal avenues for people to reach protection, to seek asylum, without ever having to resort to getting on a boat. Now that's a very general answer. The question inevitably then is how do you do that? That's fine, that's well and good, but practically how is that achieved? The reality is the state of affairs at the moment is we can't ask that question yet. Because the question of how to create those channels depends inevitably on relations with other nations in our region with Malaysia, with Thailand, with Indonesia in particular, but also with countries of origin. Any answer to that question must have their involvement. And we don't know yet, we don't have the information yet enough to know what is a policy that might be amenable to them. What's the reality of the situation on the ground in those countries? What might be possible? Because instead of investing in our relationship with other countries in the region, instead of testing what might be possible, what might be feasible, um, investing money and development aid as well as, you know, the, the diplomatic relationship in that type of approach. We're sinking it all into offshore processing, which moves us further and further away from a regional cooperation framework. So it's not a clear and precise answer, but really it has to be an acceptance that deterrence alone will not work unless you're providing something, a better alternative for people to follow. And the longer that Australia continues to lead an example of not, um, not showing due respect for our international obligations, we're trying to shirk responsibility rather than to, to be a good regional leader, then it's going to be difficult to develop a relationship with our neighbours and, and develop a framework as an alternative. The next question related to how Australia can move forward from our current political debate to a more informed discourse. I think it's definitely concerning the lack of leadership in this country, and that is both of the major political parties. There is a distinct lack of leadership on moving us forward beyond the rhetoric of a, an election year and into something more substantial. Um, I presume the comments you're referring to are the ones we've heard uh, this morning or last night from the Immigration Minister mm -hmm. suggesting that Australia is going to be overrun by refugees who are innumerable illiterate and also stealing our jobs. Um, that's exactly the type of comment, I, maybe it's more extreme now because we're in the lead up to an election, but that type of comment or making a political statement that isn't based in fact or evidence and in fact completely overlooks the academic research on that topic is actually typical of what we've had for the last four years of offshore processing. Every statement you just want to challenge and say, really, have you not read the literature? Um, so part of my call saying ignorance is no longer an excuse is trying to encourage people to hold the government, you know, hold all politicians to a higher standard in terms of the statements they make and ask people to back it up. Is there evidence of that? And if the evidence goes the other way, then how do you reconcile that with your statement? Next, an audience member asked, what is the possibility of a legal challenge, and is there any possibility that conditions on Manus and Nauru could be made more humane? Uh, in terms of legal challenge, 
it is actually impossible to say. And we saw that from the most recent, or well, one of the most recent cases, the plaintiff M68 case, which was um, a challenge to detention on Nauru. And what happened in the short period of a few months between that case being filed and the judgment was two fundamental changes, one change in fact and one change in law. And, and, and it's quite extraordinary that this occurred. That case was challenging uh, the lawfulness of the Australian government returning people to Nauru where they could possibly be detained. Um, and like I said, between the case being filed, the government said possibly realised that there was a bit of a loophole there that might have been a problem, and so legislated to retroactively give legal coverage to everything they had done since 2012, even if that had been unlawful at the time. So that's a pretty extraordinary step in the first place. The second fundamental step came about three days before the High Court hearing began. Nauru suddenly declared that the detention centre was open and there was no more detention in Nauru. So the fact on which the entire case was based evaporated three days before the case began. So they're just two examples of why it's difficult to ever predict the outcome of a challenge, because even if a case starts in the court with incredibly strong basis, um, when offshore processing has bipartisan support, legislation can be passed to legislate around what the court might think. Um, and in terms of making the centres more humane, it's been something that uh, has been proposed, and um, certainly the, the Labour platform has been that if they would come into government, they would make the centres more humane, and they would introduce oversight mechanisms. Um, the people who have actually been to these islands, who, who aren't thinking about it in the abstract, who are thinking who actually know the people and know what's happening, they would say, absolutely not. It is too late, because the people there are so damaged now. If, if you'd intervened within the first couple of months and got things back up to a decent standard, if there'd been oversight within the first six months or so, then maybe that would have been fine. But what you have now are people who have been so damaged for so many years that a nicer bed or some more living allowance or something is never going to be enough at this point um, to repair the damage that's been done. All that they want is the same thing they wanted from the beginning, which is a clear answer. When will my case be processed and where will I go next? And they're the two things that are necessary. The next comment noted that Australia's immigration policy appears to be directed at solving a domestic political problem and that there is strong bipartisan support for the current policy response to that problem. How can the facts about offshore processing outlined in your book confront this political consensus? Well, I guess if that is the metric, if, if we rate the success of offshore processing based on it fixing a domestic political, uh, addressing a domestic political concern, uh, then I think what we're seeing increasingly is that it is not actually the, the solution that would have been hoped for. I almost have sympathy for those in the immigration department that are responsible for trying to keep offshore processing on track because the reality is it has been a massive headache. It has been falling apart bit by bit, concern after concern, it's chipping away. And I think what we've seen is the more the Australian public learns about what is really going on there, the harder it has become for the government to sustain it. And this has actually become a huge endeavour in itself of just trying to keep these centres going. And that's not to mention the diplomatic headache that is existing trying to get them managing with the Nauru and the PNG governments because what we often overlook in Australia is there are two other countries involved here with their own set of concerns, their own set of domestic political issues, which they're managing. Um, and so I think while it continues to exist, I'm not sure it's solving the problem for Australia in the future, especially if Australians get more uh, information. And what's been an interesting experience once since this book has come out is um, you meet a whole range of people with a whole range of views. Like I said, that's exciting the more people you know, inform themselves and, and the 
instead we say, well, what about this sort of alternative, or what about that sort of alternative? They start to waver in their support of offshore processing even more. So I think that the more the Australian public is informed of that, uh, the less support for this policy there will be. The next question was whether personal stories will be more effective at urging policy change than statistics. Uh, I agree that the, the personal stories are usually what cuts through. Um, numbers can be hard to understand. And that's why I said at the beginning, individual stories even can be hard to understand. Because if you don't put them in the context of what your whole day has been, and your whole week, and your whole month, and your whole year in detention, then it's hard to fully understand just how much that is home. Um, but what I do try and capture are stories that I think are very easy to relate to. Um, stories about relationships between people or between parents and children or general deprivations of day-to-day -day life, which are, which are quite easier, I think, for us to understand. What is more difficult is how does it feel when you've had that year after year after year. Um, it's quite an issue. And in terms of trying to get some traction, it is worth noticing um, after the judgment I just mentioned, the, the High Court judgment about Nauru, that was when the Let Them Stay campaign took off. Um, and shortly afterwards then was the case of Baby Asher who was brought back to hospital in Brisbane and there were a group of people that stood outside that hospital um, campaigning for her to stay in the hospital. Obviously refused to discharge her until there was a, a safe home environment. Now that has created an outcome for those people. A lot of those people would be on Nauru right now, except that the Australian public rallied um, and campaigned uh, and now they're here that the government had full legal right to remove them if they wanted to. So I think there is actually hope that once you bring it back to an individual story, it's, it's a baby that needs a safe place to go to. It's young kids and families that don't want to be sent back to harm's way. Once you bring it back down to that level, I think that there actually is a lot more that the Australian public wants to hear and come to. The next question was what interventions are necessary, whether by government, by civil society or by researchers, to progress towards a regional protection framework? Well, I certainly think more research is necessary, but it absolutely needs intervention at the government level. Because at the end of the day, you can be doing as much research as you like. You need government backing, government support and government forming the relationships at the diplomatic level uh, for any of the research to be able to be implemented. Um, into a practical policy level. So I think absolutely, as we said before, we need leadership at the government level um, of really investing in saying the time has come to accept there is no alternative but to uh, find a regional solution to displacement because this problem is not going away and we can't unilaterally just shut our borders and close our eyes um, and hope that it resolves itself. So it does need that sort of government um, intervention at that level. In terms of the types of things that could work, we're not reinventing the wheel here. People have been dealing with displacement and that's been an issue in this region before. Um, and there are solutions which obviously would need to be adapted to our current situation. But you know, there, there is generally common agreement that there are things countries could do to address the reasons people are leaving in the first place. And there's been suggested sort of targeted aid, targeted development aid, for example, that could um, help in that goal. And then there are countries along the way, transit countries, as they may be called, uh, who could be encouraged to enhance the protection space they're offering so that it is um, safer to be <coughs> in that area and to stop the need to always have forward movement. But at the end of the day, you're still going to need that final piece for the people who are in need of international protection and who can't find that in the region. There will have to be a safe and legal pathway to reach permanent protection. So at some point, Australia will need to be the regional leader. 
The next comment made a comparison about Australia and Germany's policies, noting that Germany took in many thousands of asylum seekers and that even though many were found not to be refugees, they were treated humanely and allowed a fair status determination process. By contrast, Australia was described as treating people as guilty until proven innocent. Thank you. I, I think your, your comments raised three key points, which is that it's legal to seek asylum. We often forget this in this country. The second is that the way in which a country treats the most vulnerable people seeking its care is a measure on the society, and there really isn't any excuse for being inhumane or illegal in the way that you conduct your asylum policies. Uh, and the third is that it's again common agreement that it is essential for the integrity of the immigration system that those who are not in need of international protection are, as you say, screened, properly assessed, and then if they don't have international protection needs, um, return to their countries of origin. But there's no reason that cannot be done in a way that is humane, that is fair, that has to process. The next question was whether any steps are being taken towards a regional response. In a developed, advanced form, no, we're not there yet. Um, but moves towards finding a regional solution have existed for a long time in, in this area. What they're lacking, though, is the, the strong political will uh, to lock down some concrete obligations and get the practical nuts and bolts happening. So um, this is not something that's starting from scratch. There are plenty of people who have dedicated their careers to, to try and solve this issue in this region. The next comment raised concerns about reports of self-harm and attempted suicide amongst asylum seekers on Nauru and Manus and the impacts of current policies on the mental health of detainees, particularly children. Intervention noted that the argument that is always given that the policy is to stop the drownings, and this seems to put a stop to the debate. What argument can be given in response? I'd say the debate actually stops even before that. The debate stops as soon as um, our leaders and the Australian public consent to all immigration debate being brought down to binaries, to simple concepts, deleting out any of the nuance or the controversy or the difficulty. Um, the idea that everyone needs to have an opinion and they can never change their opinion. You know, a party has to have a policy, they can never change the policy. 
when you bring it down to drowning or suffering offshore, that's your binary choosing one or the other. Um, so you get back, it's, it's powerful because it's so limiting. But actually the debate stopped as soon as we uh, stopped engaging in a more dynamic and diverse debate about this, respecting intelligence for the Australian public. Um, the problem, as has been touched upon, is from a political perspective, it's much more expedient to bring it down to a binary and to put yourself on the better side of it. Um, but, but actually what that binary speaks to is the problem of limiting intelligent debate on this issue. Next, a number of questions were taken at a time. The first was, what is the best thing for the public to do now? Next, how realistic is it to expect the public to agree with the points made in the presentation and how do we reach them? The next intervention questioned whether a regional solution would be effective given the higher socio-economic status of Australia compared to other countries in the region and asked whether greater resettlement to industrialised countries would be more effective. The next question was whether a remedy is available under international law to bring Australia to account. Then the question was raised whether there is potential to challenge the secrecy of current policies based on the implied freedom of political communication in the Constitution. Finally, it was observed that our current policy may undermine a regional solution by damaging the physical and mental health of asylum seekers and therefore making it more difficult to find a solution to their plight. Okay,
these places actually do have appeals for certain groups depending on their circumstances. The issue is, though, if you're in those countries and then facing risks of um, arbitrary arrest, deportation, um, not having regularised work rights, these types of things are what might then push them on further. But if we could uh, develop a system where there was increased protection space where those rights were regulated, there actually would be a vast number of people um, who would be happy to stay in the region because traditionally uh, the majority of people seeking asylum who, who are forced to flee their homes do stay closer to home um, and do stay in, in their region. For those that that's not an option for, who do want to move on, then absolutely I think that um, countries like New Zealand and others, everyone should really be increasing their resettlement intake. Um, perhaps Australia calling on Europe at this time would be a bit hard uh, to justify given what they're facing. Um, but certainly there's room for everyone to do more. In terms of a remedy in international law, always hopeful. Um, there are, as always, a number of ongoing cases. We've seen just today a judgment handed down about, um, from the UN about Australia's indefinite detention of people on security grounds. There's always capacity, um, capacity for judgments on that. But whether that follows through into change comes down to the Australian public. That's the thing about international law. There isn't a police force that's going to come in um, and impose those judgments for us. If a UN standard has declared an Australian law or policy to be unlawful, then it is then for the Australian system, the public and our democratic institutions um, to put the pressure on the government to bring those policies back into line. Um, it's not really to sit back and wait for someone else to come in and tell us how, how to get back in order. Um, having had that judgment, it's important now to, to um, put the pressure on Australia to, to get back in line there. Uh, in terms of secrecy, you're right, it is one of the greatest, greatest uh, problems that we have over, over the entire system. Um, exactly what the question well, Whether you could potentially mount a challenge based on the flight freedom? I would say potentially everyone should be mounting challenges. There are a lot of areas in which uh, definitely the system could be you know, um, broken down. But I think it's important to note that even despite the secrecy laws, there are people who have speaking up regardless. The day the Australian Border Force Act came into place, there was letters posted publicly of people saying, well then, sue me. Um, I'm going to speak up. A lot of doctors have said we've got professional obligations. We won't be cowed into silence over what we're doing. Um, but the other difference is whether or not there's a challenge for the other group of people. The Australian Border Force Act and these threats of, of action if you speak up have a silencing effect um, that can't be measured. And, and like I said, I've spoken to people who are concerned every one of their pieces of communication is being monitored and are very nervous about that. So was, as long as that law is in place, um, we've got a, a very real problem. And in terms of traumatising people, I think at this point, those who have been offshore for several years, who have reached their current level of trauma, um, there isn't really a reasonable option other than them coming either to Australia or another country that has the resources in place to address that trauma. Um, it doesn't have to be Australia, but it does have to be a country that can address that. And then you would deal separately with um, everybody else who's displaced. Thank you, Madam. I'm going to draw things to a close. I'm going to hand over to David in just a moment. But I do just want to say a few words of thank you. First of all, I want to thank the Faculty of Law for hosting this event. Um, and and, and uh, I can't resist just taking the opportunity to say this may be the last time that I'm on a podium with David whilst he's dean of the Faculty of Law. He hands over very shortly to George Williams. And, and I think it is appropriate that it's on a topic like this because all of us who know David and the Faculty of Law know just how much the Faculty and David personally do for disadvantaged people, for human rights, social justice. So thank you, David. 
Uh, thank you to all of you for being here and for asking such thoughtful, probing, considered questions. Thank you to the Caldor, I always get the title wrong, the, the Andrew Renata Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law, and particularly to Andrew Renata Caldor, this really wouldn't have been possible without them. And of course, most importantly, thank you to Madeline. Thank you to Madeline for um, writing such a powerful, important book. Um, thank you for speaking so eloquently and for answering the questions so so thoughtfully. I, I, you, there's so many things you've written that are, are important. I thought, though, that one thing that you said, I don't know if you've written it, you said that the, the real test of a nation is how it, it treats its disadvantaged and the weaker people. And it, um, you've made that point so very well today. So thank you very much. And over to you, Dave. I'd just like to conclude, if I can, just by repeating some of those, those thank yous. Firstly, to thank you, the audience. I, I'm always quite nervous about having Q&As because they, they often don't work. I think it's actually a really positive thing to see, hear, hear the quality of the questions and the discussion that we've had tonight, a positive thing in about, about the prospects for change. If there are people in the Australian community like you, then I think that we, have, we do have, we can have, have some hope. Secondly, we're going to have some hope when our universities are led by people like Ian Jacobs. I'll play back the compliments to him. It's wonderful, I think, to have our present Vice-Chancellor coming to an event like this, and it shows Ian's really strong commitment to social justice uh, that, that he's here tonight. So thank you, Ian, for, for that. Very, very much appreciated. Thirdly, thank you to uh, New South Press, the, the, the university's press. I think it's, it's a, a great compliment to this university that it has a, a, uh, its own press which produces books of this quality and which is able to, to, to lead the debate. Uh, fourthly, thank you to the, the staff of the Caldor uh, Centre, particularly Kelly and Francis who have been running around doing the organisation and holding the microphones tonight. It is a, a wonderful organisation and a, a great group of people. Thank you to them and of course thank you to, to Jane for the, the leadership uh, that she shows. But finally, of course, I'd like to, to, to echo Ian in again thanking Madeline. And just to stress one of the really big points coming out of tonight, which is that all of this is possible only, I think, because of secrecy. The key point which has come out tonight is that there has been a very deliberate policy by our leaders in government to stop the Australian public from knowing what is being done in detail in their name. It is so much harder to, to hurt somebody when you've got their face in front of you. And that's what the great achievement of this book does, is, in my, in my book, my, my view, is that it is putting the faces, the stories of the people who we are treating so badly, our government is treating so badly, in a way that it is going to be harder in the future and in the coming electoral campaign for people to pretend that these things are not happening. So please join me in, again, thanking Madeline, and also uh, you can thank her in a very direct way by going outside, if you haven't already done so, and buying a copy of her book, which she will be there to sign. Thanks, Madeline.